0: I was the first person to bring Jay-Z down to Philadelphia, um, Wu-Tang Clan down to Philadelphia, Man. Notorious B.I.G., yeah. and I met P. Diddy through bringing B.I.G. down to Philly, to Philly and, um, and that was kind of sort of my relationship with the New York hip-hop scene, and, um, and I think that was one of the things that took me into, you know, out of like the, the farm club into the minor leagues and, like, and, and kind of moved up from there. When he was 14 years old,
1: growing up in West Philadelphia, Troy Carter started promoting parties at a neighbor's house and charging for entry. He did the DJing himself to save money. Today, he's one of the most respected visionaries at the intersection of two key industries, music and tech. Carter wears a lot of hats. He's been a manager, working with the likes of John Legend, Lady Gaga, and Megan Trainor. He's an investor, a general partner at venture capital firm Cross Culture Ventures, and he's a connector. As global head of creator services at Spotify, he's ushering artists into the streaming age. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly, I want you to subscribe so this gets to you automatically. One less thing to worry about. I met up with Troy Carter recently outside of San Francisco at the Black Enterprise Tech Connect Summit. We talked about his path from rags to riches to rags and back again and how a high school dropout learned to reinvent himself in an industry. Here's Troy Carter. How have you seen this digital story evolve over the last five years?
0: You know, I think it's, I think it's been uh, transformational for, for the industry overall. You know, when you look at um years back there were you know this whole concept of uh gatekeepers and kingmakers you know so where the kingmakers were were, were the sort of um uh label heads and um and you had program directors at radio stations or program directors at you know some of the video networks and essentially you know a few dozen people around the world can make a call on who the next generation of superstars were going to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think what we've seen over the last you know, five, ten years is this sort of uh, democratization of, um, of, of music and of process and of distribution. And, um, and, I, and I think it's good for creativity. I think it's good for artists. I also think it's good for consumers, um, you know, because you have more choices. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also, just as music lovers, it takes us out of that sort of uh, segmented and, uh, and segregated uh, types of music and kind of opens it up for, you know, whether you like hip-hop, rock, pop, R&B, country, you know, within this sort of new ecosystem of playlists, everything's there for you. Mm. You managed Lady Gaga. Mm-hmm. I, b- I believe somebody
1: brought her into your office before she had her first album. She had most of the songs maybe together on it and had her look together, but before yes. the first album, through her rise. Also, pretty recently, you kind of helped Megan Trainer do Megan Trainer 2.0. Mm-hmm. How did the process change from Lady Gaga to, to Meghan Trainor based on how music and the way music is distributed had changed?
0: I think there's, you know, I think we see um, a rapid acceleration in terms of reach. You know, um, when I first started in the music business, you know, you would have this concept of we're going to start this record in Philadelphia, then we'll move it up to New York, then we can kind of move it up to Boston, you know, so this sort of regional approach, and then you can move Midwest, West Coast, and then eventually, you know, if you want to do international expansion, you could do international expansion. So it was like a game of risk. (laughs) Exactly. Huh. You know, but now it's, you know, and then with, with, with Lady Gaga, I think the difference was, you know, because we couldn't get our stuff played on the radio, we were using um, new platforms like YouTube, Facebook, um, Twitter to kind of reach audiences with uh, and bypassing gatekeepers. You uh, couldn't get her played on the radio? Oh, no. It was very, very difficult to get her played on the radio. Why not? You know, I think the music was so different at that point. Her music was, uh, it was this sort of European, four-on-the-floor, you know, sort of music. Um, And at that time, I think pop music was a little more sugary. Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Mm -hmm. Jessica uh, Simpson—sort of pop music.
1: Maybe you could go Pink, but that was about as far out as you can go. go. (laughs) And you know,
0: and I think Gaga kind of landed from another planet on top of pop music. We we called it. um, We gave pop music the flu. (laughs) And um, but you know, in order to give them that flu, we had to go through these other sort of alternative distribution sources, which was you know. social media I don't even know if they were calling it social media at that time but it you know but it took us probably eight months to a year to penetrate the world you know where 10 years prior to that it would have taken us three or four years to penetrate the world and with Megan Trainor I think we penetrated the world within two weeks you know so you know I think her all about that base video you know went to you know crossed a billion views uh, a lot quicker than Lady Gaga's entire video catalog crossed a a billion views. And and I think that was due to how quickly and uh, how big YouTube had grown. What's the value
1: of a billion views on YouTube for an artist? I mean, when it comes to making money, I mean, building a brand, I get. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to really making money and, and having an extended life, what does that do for you?
0: Uh, I think it does a lot, you know. It's just, it's the, it, and it depends on, on purpose, you know. So if, if you're an artist that's solely reliant on, you know, the YouTube platform, then, you know, then maybe a billion views may not generate a ton of revenue. But if you look at it in terms of a strategy of, I'm, you know, I'm trying to reach a few hundred million people around, around the world in an, in an accelerated amount of time. Um, plus, on top of that, I'm building out my Snapchat strategy, my you know my SoundCloud strategy, my Spotify strategy. You know, I think it's I think it's a holistic approach where uh, putting videos out on YouTube and in, vi- in vivo is a, is a great benefit to that strategy.
1: Megan Trainer and Lady Gaga, in a way, have nothing in common. Yeah. <laughs> But then, in a way, they have a lot in common, because neither one of them is Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. What do you define as the uniqueness of Megan Trainer? And what did you work with her to do to
0: extend that
1: with her, with her second?
0: You know, I, I think, you know, um, for, for me, management has always been about um, point of view. You know, so, uh, you know, what 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 unique point of view does that artist bring to the world? Okay, and a lot of young artists um, are—they develop their point of view over over time, you know. And I think you know when you compare, you know, whether you know it was John Legend or John Mayer or Lady Gaga or Megan Trainer, I think you know all of them are very unique in their in their in, uh, in in their own way, with not a lot in common, but all of them have very. Uh, distinctive point of views about the world. And, uh, and you know, what Lady Gaga was able to do, you know, and for, for the LGBT community, you know, for a generation that were kind of voiceless at that time, whether mm-hmm. it was Don't Ask, Don't Tell, whether it was, you know, the Marriage Equality Act, you know, watching her work behind the scenes on very important issues. Um, Megan Trainor, you know, around... Um, Issues with, with female bodies. I watched um, Mattel change Barbie after you know they re- after Megan released all about that base, and um, you know there's a lot of girls dealing with body issues. You know they're looking at Instagram and kind of seeing oh, this is how I'm supposed to look. And, you know, that's, that led to eating disorders, cutting themselves, suicides. And here was a girl that didn't look like the typical pop star that basically, you know, came out with videos saying about how proud she was about, you know, her body and her image. So I think the point of view um, had a lot to do with getting me excited about the project.
1: Talk to me about you, uh, Philadelphia area native. Yes. Um, and you worked with a lot of interesting artists over the years on your rise to management and uh, eventually um, venture capital, which I also want to talk to you about. What was your first interaction with
0: the music business? I think my my first interaction with the music business was was buy-in. 45s and albums from uh, Goodman's record store around the corner from my grandmother's house. And you know, just, and doing house parties, and, um,
1: and. DJing?
0: I, I, I did everything from DJing to actually promoting house parties. You know, and I only was the DJ because it was, you would have to pay the DJ, so to save a little money, you know, um, I, I'd do the party myself. So, so I, I was a guy who fell in love with, the, with music culture, mm-hmm. and then... Um, and so, then, how old were you? I, I started in the music business when I was about 14, about 14 years old.
1: Now, you were allowed to promote and host house parties at like 14,
0: 15 years old? Well, the, the truth is, <laughs> it was a family that lived across the street from me that emigrated from Liberia. And, um, and their, their dad was a, a, a doctor at a hospital down the street, um, and he worked nights. <laughs> and he also had an illegal speakeasy in their basement <laughs> that when, after nightclubs were over, uh, they would have this sort of, these parties at their house. And a lot of the African community, they were, you know, they were from Liberia, so a lot of the African community in Philly would come to these parties, you know, after hours. So we cut a deal with my friend's dad that from eight o'clock until midnight, we would do our little parties, uh-huh. we would clean up, and then get it ready for his parties that he would have. <laughs> and so we would that we figured out a way to make some money and that was like my first entrepreneurial uh, 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 business. How much did you make? You know, we would make a few hundred bucks a week. So for you know a fourteen-year-old yeah. kid that could <laughs> buy your, own, you could buy your own sneakers, you could buy your own clothes. In the you early know, '90s, right? We did. You know, we did well. My, you know, and I didn't have to. Uh, you know, we didn't grow up with any mo- no money in my house, so I didn't have to put pressure on my mom. What's the first?
1: either major artist or artist who was gonna become major, who you started interacting with around that time?
0: You know, so, I think Will Smith was the first, uh, Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince were the first artists that I met, you know, and you know, we, had this idea that we were going to put a rap group together. If we met Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince, they were going to give us a record deal. And that's, I mean, in Philly, that was it. It was it. It's like you, mean, get, you didn't get any bigger. And they, those were guys that were from our neighborhood that made it out the neighborhood. And um, and we met those guys, and they did give us a record deal. How did you meet them? We just sta- we, we stayed in front of their studio every single day until <laughs> they showed up, pretty much. And, um, and, and they, they're still lifelong friends, and I, you know... I was on email with Jazzy Jeff yesterday about his new record, and um, you know, uh, on with Will last week about his son, and Smith's new record. So we're still friends after all of these years.
1: Is that just a Philly thing, or is that the way it used to work? Because, you know, check this out, one day back in Philly, four kids wanted to see me. <laughs> I mean, did you just like hang out in front
0: of somebody's place and, and pitch? Phil- Philadelphia is a small community. Um, you know, everybody, the music community all knows each other. So. Boys, the men, you know, all of us kind of came up I was together. Calling, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all came up together. And um, so I knew those guys pretty well. And so the roots, you know, Quest Love, his, his house was on the same house, same block as the church that I went to. Man. So, you know, all of us knew each other coming up. Mm. Yeah. You also got involved with
1: some of the folks in the New York scene. hmm. How did, that, how, did you, how did you move up north? Is that part of promoting somebody when you're talking about that coastal
0: regional strategy or, or what? Yes. So in, um, no, no, none of the big promoters wanted to touch promoting hip-hop shows in Philly. And this is pre-Live Nation, pre-AEG. So, um, so I put together some of the hip-hop shows in Philly. But w- because what? I, I, because I loved hip-hop. No, but why, why didn't the big promoters want to do it? Oh, uh, the, the big promoters wouldn't touch it because they didn't understand the culture. So, you know, a lot of, you know, it was the reputation of, you know, people they shooting. end up in violence, right. you know, um, I really don't understand, this isn't real music. Hmm. Um, so I think it was a fear of the culture. And uh, by the way, sometimes it did end up in violence and, you know, but you know, some of the nights that that we did became you know historical nights. You know, so I was I was the first person to bring Jay Z down to Philadelphia, mm. um, Wu Tang Clan down to Philadelphia, Man. Notorious B.I.G. Yeah, and I met P. Diddy through bringing B.I.G. down to Philly, to Philly. and um, and that was kind of sort of my relationship with the New York hip hop scene, and um, and I think that was one of the things that took me into you know out of like the the farm club into the minor leagues and like in, and kind of moved up from there. Talk to me about
1: the culture in the early 90s and where you as a kid fit into it because I mean I know there was a lot of black consciousness rap back then you know we had sort of been through De La Soul, Jungle Brothers, etc. But also a lot of the gangster rap was coming in and the culture was trying to, at least I felt, push young kids to act a certain way, to have a certain kind of swagger. You seem kind of like me <laughs> in a sense that we wouldn't necessarily be the guys who'd be expected to be the promoter of yeah. a hip hop show. How did you fit your your perspective and your personality into this growing business that you had
0: going? You know, it's, it, I think coming from the culture um, had a lot to do with it, you know, so, you know, growing up in, um, in in West Philly, it was, you know, we grew up in a tough neighborhood. It was during the crack epidemic. It was, you know, we lost a lot of friends to, and family members to jail and, and gun violence. And, you know, my dad was in jail for murder, you know, from the time I was six to the time I was 18. So it was, I was very familiar with, with, the the context of some of the music that you that you just mentioned from a personal perspective but at the same time it's like you know I grew up in the in the in the church I grew up in and you know w- you know being well read from a lady on my bl- on my grandmother's block who helped you know helped me she had, she was the only house on the block with a library in her house in uh- the hood and so she made me read, you know, yeah. so I grew up seven years old reading the local newspapers because she would have me get the newspaper and read certain things to her. 80-year-old, you know, only white woman in our neighborhood. <laughs> so it's um, so I grew up, it was complex. It, I, I feel like it was a lot of complexities and, and layers to, to who I was from a very young age. So I wasn't afraid of being in a room with certain types of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether that was the Suge Knights and the Defro and the Rough Riders and guys like that who I had to do business with, and, and I wasn't intimidated f- with record executives and studio executives or, you know, Ivy League people who I, who I had to navigate with. So none of it really intimidated me. So I think that had a lot to do with the navigation. You know, and also uh, what I understood was when you looked at the NWAs um, who were coming out of Compton, or you were looking at, you know, some of the harder stuff that was coming, Schoolie D that was coming out of Philly, right. you know, these were authentic stories the same way Maya Angelou had uh, authentic stories about the way she grew up, and, you know, so... I, th- I felt like it was a certain amount of poetry to it mm-hmm. and self-reflection. And also, this was this was pre-mobile phones. Right. So, so yeah. when NWA was saying, F the police, um, and they were talking about this experience that was happening in Compton, they were speaking about personal things that they experienced through police brutality and police shootings and uh, and police corruption through the music before people could witness it on their mobile phones. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> before
1: not only was it before smartphones, it was before cell phones. It was yes. beeper time. Yes. Back then. But so yeah, there was, no yeah, yeah, there were no so, witnesses. There were no witnesses. So the song it, was the witness.
0: The, the song. The song was the witness. Uh, so so. So I think now when people see, you know, these sort of protests, um, like you know, Kaepernick taking a knee, or they're seeing video of people uh, getting gunned down, uh, you know, you know, while they have their hands in the air or whatever, uh, you know, I think there were there, a lot of that was being told through music, and I, and I don't think people could understand it back then. That's a great point.
1: At what point, as a businessman? did you decide to expand beyond the management and promotion of music?
0: You know, I, I, I think I got exposed um, to, to, I think, to, to bigger business. You know, we, uh, when I sold my company, I sold my company in 2004, one of our, our, our talent, my original talent management company. And I sold it to a publicly traded company out of the UK mm-hmm. and who have managed uh, a lot of bigger artists like Guns N' Roses and Destiny's Child. And it, it kind of gave me exposure to, okay, this business is much bigger than what we were thinking. Uh, and when I so when I sold when I started my new company, Atom Factory, the, the idea was how can I diversify it a bit? Technology was just starting to take off, and I, you know, I was curious about what was happening, and to that, in, in that space, and it was sort of Web 2.0, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of young entrepreneurs who, who I started paying attention to, and it was a lot of interest in media companies, you know, specifically like Netflix and what was happening there. That, you know, that kind of piqued my interest, and in, you know, is the media business going through something? Uh, transformational that I should really have keep my eye on. Was it the funds
1: from selling that first business of yours that you used to become an investor?
0: No, I actually, I went broke after <laughs> selling that first business. Oh, tell me about that. <laughs> it, Why'd uh, you go broke? You know, uh, I, I think uh, I wasn't, too, I think two things happened. One, my First client with the uh, my my client who I brought along with me to launch the first business fired me. And, You're uh, talking about Lady Gaga? Uh, no, that was okay. uh, that was uh, that was uh, Eve. Eve. Yes. Okay. So Eve, uh, you know, I had managed for years. Right. And then when I started the new business, Eve had come along with me, and then she had fired me, and I had a lot of money put into this new business, and then the financial crisis happened. Yeah. And kind of, you know, that that wiped me out completely. So uh, so Lady Gaga was uh, the, the client who I signed after Eve had left. Wow. Okay. And so, you know, so I sort of started from scratch, built the business essentially out of my uh, office at home, and then, you know, started the cash flow I started receiving from that business after a few years, I started putting that into investing in early stage technology Did companies. that
1: experience with Eve teach you how to rebound?
0: Yes, for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> how hard was it getting fired that first time? How long did it take you to, to bounce back
0: and get a plan together? It probably was... Elite. It was two years from the time... E fired me to, until the time I considered myself not even, I wouldn't call it back on my feet, but stabilized. And, you know, because I, I think I dealt with everything from um, depression to the grind of having to start over to you know working through the embarrassment of you know everything that you have to go through from you know i went through the foreclosure stuff i went through the repossession stuff i went through the um having to you know having to uh basically reinvent because one thing i learned when, when you're on that cold concrete, you learn who your friends are. Oh, you yeah. learn, you know, your, your phone calls don't get returned, you know, <laughs> as fast. And, you know, people in the music business, you know, I, I found out how great people are in the music business because people who didn't have to show up really, really showed up. And um, and the people who, some people you thought would show up disappeared. So. Mm. You know, so so that was you know. To, to, it took a, it took a couple years to, to stabilize, but um, but it was a lot of valuable life lessons that that I that I that I got through that experience.
1: Um, we're we're up
0: against uh, this
1: conference that's about to start. So unfortunately, I got to wrap up, but I can't before asking you about. Um, Cross culture ventures. Mm-hmm. You've invested in Dropbox, uh, the Skim, just a number of, of different uh, types of businesses. What's the concept behind it? What are you trying to do that's different from your average Sand Hill Road uh, VC investment firm?
0: You know, I, I think um, you know. I never, I never heard the term venture capital until about seven years ago. So, I, mm-hmm. you know, I. I dropped out of high school in in eleventh grade, and ended up going to Job Corps and, uh, and and to get a GED from Job Corps. So just no sort of formalized training and finance or anything like that. I think the, what, I think instinct has helped me out a lot in, in, in business, and I think uh, feel has, has helped me out a lot. You know because signing. You, you, when you sign music clients, you, you're basically um, betting on the future and, and, and thinking about talent, work ethic. You know, what are, what are those soft things that I see in this artist that absent a hit song could push them over the finish line? Because artists have ebb, is ebb and flow. Right. You're hot and you're cold. And how, do, do you have that natural ability of, of drive that's going to, you know, that where you're going to take a Mack truck and drive it through a cul-de-sac to, 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 to see things through? And entrepreneurs, you, you're looking for the same thing. And so for me, I'm investing through the eyes of a consumer. Um, is this product something that people I know it use is it something that I feel, you know, from a trend perspective that people are going to pick up on and is this the right guy or girl who who like what makes you uniquely qualified to get this done because it's going to get tough and does this person have the that thing that's going to that's that's going to get it done? Are you going to be, you know, it's when you get knocked on your butt, are you going to fight for it? So those are the things, the qualities that we kind of look for. And luckily enough, you know, we got it right more times than we got it wrong.
1: Well, hey, it's something yeah. you obviously know from experience. Troy, we got to do this again. No, definitely. This has been this great. This is good. Thank I you. Thank you. It. My thanks to Troy Carter. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There, I'll tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook and search for John Fort and you know what to do from there. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortknox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.